Abner then sent word to Israel's elders, you've wanted David to be your king for some time now, he said. It's time to act because the Lord has said about David, I will rescue my people Israel from the power of the Philistines and all their enemies through my servant David. Abner also spoke directly to the Benjamites. He then went to inform David in person at Hebron regarding everything that all Israel and the house of Benjamin were willing to do. When Abner, along with 20 others, reached David at Hebron, David threw a celebration for Abner and his men. Then Abner said to David, Please let me get going so I can assemble all Israel for my master the king. Then they can make a covenant with you, and you will rule over everything your heart desires. At that, David sent Abner off in peace. Right then, David's soldiers and Joab returned from a raid, bringing a great deal of loot with them. Abner was no longer with David in Hebron because David had sent him off in peace. When Joab and all the troops with him returned, Joab was told that Abner, Ner's son, had come to the king and that David had sent him off in peace. Joab went to the king and asked, What have you done? Abner came to you here. Why did you send him off? Now he's gotten away. Don't you know the evil ways of Abner, Ner's son? He came to trick you, to find out where you come and go, and to learn everything you do. Joab left David and sent messengers after Abner. They brought him back from the well at Sirah, but David didn't know anything about this. When Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside next to the gate to speak with him in private. But instead, Joab stabbed Abner in the stomach, and he died for shedding the blood of Asaho, Joab's brother. When David heard about this later, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the shedding of the blood of Abner, her son. May it fall upon the head of Joab and his entire family tree. May Job's family never be without someone with a discharge or a skin disease, someone who uses a crutch, someone who dies by the sword, or someone who is hungry. So that is how Joab and his brother Abishai murdered Abner because he killed their brother Asaho in the battle at Gibeon. Then David, go to the end, sorry, okay. Then David ordered Joab and all the troops who were with him, tear your clothes and put on funeral clothes, mourn for Abner. King David himself walked behind the body. They buried Abner in Hebron. The king wept loudly at Abner's grave. All the troops cried, too. Then the king sang this funeral song for Abner. Should Abner have died like a fool dies? Your hands weren't bound, your feet weren't chained, but you have fallen like someone falls before the wicked. Then the troops cried over Abner again. Then all the soldiers came to urge David to eat something while it was still day, but David swore, may God deal harshly with me, and worse still if I eat bread or anything else before the sun goes down. All the troops took notice of this and were pleased by it. Indeed, everything that the king did pleased them. So on that day, all the troops and all Israel knew that it wasn't the king's idea to kill Abner, nor son. The king told his soldiers, Don't you know that a prince and a great man in Israel has fallen today? And today, though I am the anointed king, I am weak. These men, Zariah's sons, are too strong for me. May the Lord repay the one who does evil according to the evil they did. Thanks, Howie. I couldn't tell if, if Maggie was a fan of, of Abner, if she was heckling Abner when he came up in the story. Um, so after a couple weeks of political conventions and all the hot takes and commentary, it's hard not to read today's scripture passage along some of the li- same lines of power and political discord. After all, The king and the prince, Saul and Jonathan, they're dead. Last week, we peeked in as David, the coming commander-in-chief, 
sang a sad, sad song over the deaths of his former boss and his closest friend. A few chapters later, we're seeing how things are shaping up and how the power shifts and factions are aligning. It's a little hard uh, for us as, uh, as Americans. I think everyone's an American in, in this room and not like a Canadian. Do we have any Canadians in the house? No. Darn. <coughs> it's a little hard, though, uh, even if you're a Canadian, to wrap your head around the Hebrew tribal system, right? Land and land borders are not really a great analogy for the way these tribes relate to the whole um, of a nation. But if we were to make that analogy, if we made that comparison, Judah, uh, David's tribe, would be that large, southern, independent-thinking clan to the south, kind of like Texas on the electoral map, while the other 11 northern kingdoms line up under Saul's 40-year-old son, Ishbosheth. Oh, you've never heard of Ishbosheth, right? <laughs> it doesn't really roll off the tongue, and that gives you a pretty decent idea of what kind of leader Ishbosheth was. Needless to say, he was a candidate ripe for disloyalty. It seemed like the writing was on the wall, that it was going to be David and it was going to be Judah last standing. So into all this strife, all this uncertainty, we're introduced with both second-in-command characters. These are the heads of, of each kingdom's armies, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. It's crazy how they take control of the story. We don't even hear about David uh, for quite a while. So our passage starts with Abner. He's the, ad, he's the admiral for the northern kingdoms of Israel. He's kind of that, that prime archetype character of a calculating pragmatist. Here's what I mean by that. Abner has ambition to get to the top. He's going to do everything. He's going to pull every string. And he's even maybe going to overstep himself sometimes. Like, like before our passage, it talks, he's getting confronted by Ishbosheth because he had sex with one of, of Saul's ex-wives. He seems to be trying to step into Saul's shoes by slipping into his bed. And when he's confronted by Ishbosheth, he uses talk about God to shame and to intimidate Ishbosheth, his boss, the, the king of the north. And aside to always, we've seen this several times in our study this summer, uh, whenever there's a name, especially like a, a weird name that it's hard to say, don't just skip over it. That's really tempting to do. Try to look up what that name means because it's normally a pretty good key. Uh, Ishbosheth is, is kind of a man of shame. So it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's not, it's not all that uh, surprising that, that he is put to shame by Abner. This is what Abner says. This is how Abner uses God to, to help push his agenda. He says, may God deal harshly with me, Abner, and worse still if I don't do for David exactly what the Lord swore to him. Removing the kingdom from Saul's house and securing David's throne over Israel and over Judah from Dan all the way down to Beersheba. Ishbosheth couldn't say a single word in reply to Abner because he was afraid of him. That's 2 Samuel 3, 9 through 11. And here we thought using the name of God was unique to our political world, right? Abner sets up a meeting then with Israel's elders. And again, he, he appeals to what God has said. 
to try to bend people to his will. He says to them, it's time to act. We have to move. Because the Lord has said this about David. I will rescue my people Israel from the power of the Philistines and all their enemies through my servant David. He seems to be telling them that they're on the wrong side of this equation, but uh, embedded in that is this, this subtle power play for Abner. Beware, whether in electoral politics or in the politics of our, of our real everyday lives, the things that we do that we don't even know that we're doing that we don't even think about, beware when someone uses the name of God, who God is and what God said, to prop up what they want, what their agenda is. Beware, especially when they use it to shame and to coerce others into falling in line. I think this impulse happened also in the early church. We, if you read through the Apostle Paul's letters, you, you see consistently these factions forming, these, these v- people gathering around various apostles, even super apostles as they're known. And, and these, these teachers try to gain a gathering they, they try to twist and they try to constrict the goodness and the truth and the beauty of the gospel into something less. There's always going to be something less to this gospel if it's used to, to if it, or if you can manipulate it or control it, if you can master it. It's, it's something less if, if it's like a system that you can game or that you can control people with. The apostle Paul, in encountering some of these people, his contemporaries, he even says, Satan even disguises himself as an angel of light. This is tricky. We have to keep our eyes open here. But here's a crazy irony. Ironically, the good news for the Apostle Paul that he's encountering is really the same good news that's coming off of Abner's lips. We might think Abner is really shady, but... God has said emphatically, I will rescue my people Israel from the power of the Philistines and all their enemies through my servant David. That's the core of Paul's message. I will rescue my people Israel. And Paul knows that Israel has been and is being reformed around Christ from the power of the Philistines. And that involves a little context. That's an almost continuous loop of, of timeless uh, empires popping up. The empire du jour, whether it's, whether it's Egypt or Rome or you name it. The embodiment of sin and death and rebellion, of violence and unpeace. Through my servant David. Now through Jesus, David's greater son, the true king. That's Paul's gospel. It's also what Abner's saying. Isn't that that weird how that can happen there? We catch glimpses of how this king, in the mold of servant David, how this sort of king acts. Abner goes to David, and what does David do when Abner comes to him? He kills him on the spot, right? No, that's not what it said. Um, He built a wall to keep him out. No, David accepts Abner with celebration. And then it says he sends him in peace. David is not like Abner. In David, we find a leader secure enough not to calculate, 
but secure enough to welcome and secure enough to offer hospitality and to extend blessing and good, even to someone whose talk is pretty good, but whose motives are pretty mixed. And then we meet Abner's counterpart, Joab. These are great foils for each other in this story. If Abner is the untrustworthy, opportunistic, kind of calculating pragmatist, Joab, who's the southern king's commander, he's, he's David's guy, he's, the, he's like the, the brutal ideologue. To Joab and to Joab's brothers, everything looks like a nail because it seems like all they have is a hammer to kind of further their, their goals and their interests and their loyalty to Judah. Joab can't conceive of the fact that David would let a creep like Abner into his courts, and, and then he's even more scandalized that David would let him get away, right? This too finds some footing in the Apostle Paul's story. This is who Paul, or maybe I should say Saul of Tarsus, this is who he was. He was a hitman. He was an assassin. He was the one taking care of business by any means necessary. He was killing those whose words and lives witnessed to another way. Those who had pledged allegiance to another king. One that didn't fit into Saul of Tarsus' ideology. Then what ensues from this meeting, this clash of Abner and Joab, it's really kind of like, well, whatever your pick your poison here. It's either like games of Game of Thronesy or or like House of Cards styled, cold blooded, like murder, and it, and it's predicated on on doing two things: on settling a personal score, because Abner killed Joab's brother, in battle. Or it's to guard against Abner's looming power play. That's that's what Joab is is so nervous about. The results of this sort of leadership, this sort of living, is vindictiveness, settling scores, and fear, always guarding against a threat. These two men show us some of our own ways that we constantly try to, to justify ourselves before God, before others. The moral of the story, too, is that when a schemer like Abner and an ideologue like Joab meet, all hell breaks loose, right? This is maybe a spoiler alert for the next four coming months of campaigning. But here's where it all gets interesting. It all seems to be spinning completely out of control. The old king's body is getting cold and the kingdom is splintering and experiencing violence and deceit at its top ranks. And then some hope shines through in the leadership of David. This is the same David that welcomed his opposition with celebration and sent him off in peace. This David now mourns. He weeps. He sings a funeral song. He conducts a funeral song for Israel. Incongruously, he laments. Uh, that song in the italics was kind of his song. It doesn't look like a song because it'd be hard to sing for us. But he laments with a song saying, why should Abner have died like a fool? There should be a little light that goes off because of the story that we read a few weeks ago. 
Do you remember Nabal? Do you remember he's introduced and his name means fool? <laughs> Nabal, whose wife was a peacemaker, Abigail. Abigail's the one that ratcheted down the sort of lethal ideological conflict that David's headed towards right here. David seems to have learned. He's learned also how to cry. It seems that he's actually getting really good at crying in public. Maybe that's the job description for God's type of king, someone that's good at crying in public. He's also learned how to fast. He says, may God deal harshly with me and worse if I eat bread or anything else before the sun goes down. Notice how this has come back full circle too. You really have to pay attention to this story and, and read it for a long period of time and then go back and go forth and your, your Bible should be coming apart at the seams because of the way you're flipping back and forward. You see, Israel's last king, Saul, made the hasty mistake of pledging a fast to God not on behalf of himself, but on behalf of his food-deprived soldiers. That's like, as like a pastor who's also a husband and dad, that's like the best kind of thing to do is like when you propose a fast for not yourself, you know? That's great. And you say, oh yeah, we're, we're, my family's going to fast. It'll be awesome. But he, he kind of hastily pledges this fast for his soldiers. And it comes back to bite him when his son Jonathan unwittingly dips his stick in some honey and eats it and it revives his soul because he's starving on the front lines. And Paul, or pardon, Saul, uh, the consequence was that is if anyone eats, I'm going to kill him. And all of a sudden he's stuck in this pickle that his son whom he loves is the one who tripped on the trap that he set. Saul made these sacrifices and promises and pledges for others while King David takes them upon himself. David takes it on his own body. His own body is going to feel the pang of hunger, the pang of grief for Abner's death, and, and he would bring that sorrow before the Lord. Well, all these might seem like small details, small little connections in this story. I think they represent a huge gulf between David and Saul. And also a massive development for David. I think this might be our, our takeaway. That David's life with God develops. He learns from the past. He lives and he learns, but he always does it in front of the Lord. You, you live and you learn, but you do it in front of the Lord. Even as we might fault David for not having the strength, maybe the wherewithal or the control of this situation, I think right now we'd, we'd call this that David, as the head of everything, had lack of institutional control is what they call it, right? Even as he, he, he has all these lacks, he makes maybe his most telling and aware statement in verse 39. He says, and today, though I am the appointed king, I am weak. These men, Zeruah's sons, are too strong for me. May the Lord repay the one who does evil according to the evil that they did. He says, though I am king, I am weak. Though I am king, I am weak. 
These men, these violent men, are indeed too strong for me. They're forces of revenge and violence and power and plotting and animosity and suspicion and unpeace are too strong for me. And then he swings. He says, let the Lord intervene. Let the Lord pay them back. This is a pretty bleak note right now. But I find some comfort here. I, I, I think at this point, this story kind of can intersect with our stories. I find comfort here in that when David is at an end to himself, like this is, David is at an end of himself here. When David is at an end of himself, it's still not the end. Like 2 Samuel doesn't stop in chapter 3, right? When David is at an end to himself, it's still not the end. I find that comforting that he admits that he's weak. He admits that he's incapable. Not only that, but in some sense he failed. Had he been stronger, things might have turned out better. Had he been shrewder, perhaps Joab wouldn't have had that much leeway. This should comfort us, right? All these regrets that we carry around. I find comfort that even as David admits his weakness and his failure, he trusts in God's justice. That might seem like a weird leap for us to make here. Our weakness to God's justice. That God might make things right, though. Gone from David is the pressure to figure out the next politically savvy move, like Abner probably would have done, or to provide a, a crushing counter move to deal with it, like Joab. No, David is going to trust in the Lord. David is going to prove those words that are on Abner's lips about the promise for rescue for God's people from sin and death. He's going to prove them true by letting God be God and not participating in that cycle of sin and death. By not becoming like Abner, by not becoming like Joab. David is going to be, to some measure, that promises fulfillment, not despite, but exactly through weakness, exactly through peace, exactly through reconciliation. In David, we find a way of wielding power that recognizes something elemental about true power and true greatness. This writer Andy Crouch puts it this way. True greatness and true power is faithful all the way down, including humbly, being humbly quick to admit limitedness, sin, and brokenness, and to ask for forgiveness. That's what true greatness and actually true power looks like. But here's where we get stuck. Like in real life, here's where we get stuck. Because we fall in love with Abner's way. Not just because it makes sense, but I think because it makes us feel good. It makes us feel good to feel like we have power. To think that we are in control. It gives us the sense that if we just play our cards right, we can move forward. Or that if we just band 
with the right people or hitch onto certain people's wagons. We might be stronger together. This is, pretty, this is a pretty intoxicating feeling. When we're pulled into this like imaginative world, we wind up using others to achieve, or we use other people to survive. Other people, our neighbors whom we're supposed to love, become pawns that we kind of move around, or obstacles that we have to overcome rather than gifts and friends to be enjoyed. But I also think, strangely enough, we also fall in love with Joab's way. This is the way of dominance. I don't think you have to be a man to enjoy this hyper-masculine good feeling of not only winning but crushing someone. You decimate someone that's, that's wronged you. And believe me, plenty of people have wronged you. But perhaps when you fall in love with this way, you don't, it doesn't even have to come to physical like fisticuffs, right? Maybe you can just wither someone with a word. <laughs> or worse, maybe you just cut someone off. Like you just let them, let them flag in the wind. Because it feels good. It feels good in this world with all its all different types of injustice. It feels good to be, even in a small, very limited way, it feels good to be the judge and the jury and the executioner and to get to make that call. It feels good to play God. And we talk ourselves into not only how good it feels, but how right it is to do this. If we don't hold them accountable, who will? This view looks at others primarily as enemies. Looks at others as it looks as at resources as scarce. Looks at justice as kind of a now or never thing. This is a way to to really live into a world that's fearfully but not very wonderfully made. And then there's the David way. And spoiler, I think the David way is the Jesus way. This is the way of celebration and peace, of lament and weakness. This is the way that the ideologue Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, was reborn into when he met Jesus, or when he was met by Jesus. In Paul's own words, he said, God said to me, my grace is enough for you. Because power is made perfect in weakness. So I'll gladly spend my time bragging about my weaknesses so that Christ's power can rest on me. Therefore, I'm all right with weaknesses. I'm okay with insults. I'm okay with disasters and harassments and stressful situations for the sake of Christ. Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That doesn't sound like the Abner-styled Saul of Tarsus. That sounds like a David and like a Jesus-style Paul who's been sent. It's this thorn that Paul had, this nagging, persistent reminder of his weakness and imperfection that drives him over and over to come back to Jesus, to come back to the cross. It's this that birthed and grew in him by the Spirit, a kind of a cross-shaped love what one scholar calls a cruciform love. 
in the shape of a cross. Cruciform love resists the temptation to make myself the focus of everything, even my spirituality. Cruciform love refuses to exercise rights and powers and privileges, spiritual gifts and so forth. If their use will do me good, but someone else or a community of which I'm a part harm. Cruciform love liberates me from myself and for the other. The goal then is to fall again and again, absolutely in love with Jesus, who embodied the, who was the embodiment of cruciform love, the image of the invisible God on a cross. We're to fall in love with Jesus again and again because of what he's done, liberating us from sin and death for freedom to walk with God. But even more so because of who he is. Jesus, this king whose kingdom we might never have guessed, we might never have chosen for ourselves, just seemingly comes out of nowhere, but it was coming down the road the whole time. This, this king whose very presence judges and calls us to repent for all the other things we've come to love, for all the things we've formed our hopes and our lives around. All the other ways pale when we encounter the way, the truth, and the life in Jesus. When we abandon our lives to Jesus, this is the sort of love that we experience, and this is the sort of love that captures our imaginations and calls our minds and bodies and hearts towards an everyday life. We get a hint of it in David, like through a glass darkly, but we see it in full in Jesus. That Polaroid picture sharpens in Jesus. He's a king, providentially anointed, whose strength is shown in weakness. Whose power is lifted up not through the domination of Rome or Babylon or America, but through the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Who takes away the world's sin and sorrows and death and puts it on himself for our sake. We can say hallelujah for that. That would be appropriate, I think. We can say hallelujah, but we, we, we can also be a little bothered by this, right? I'm not sure this is ever supposed to be all that comfortable, all that normal, all that practical, or all that obviously beneficial to us, right? Like when we get baptized, it's, it's exciting and like a, a great photo op, but it's also a, dr a public drowning, <laughs> into the death of Christ so that we can be raised in his resurrection to new life. I'm not, I'm not sure it's ever supposed to make sense that we're joined to him and called to imitate him. I'm not sure we'd ever get there on our own if he didn't come for us. I mean, look at the closest students of Jesus who walked with him for years, and they all fled as he died a criminal's death. As he died on the cross, weak and exposed, the ways of the world, like David, were seemingly too strong for him. The cross is that statement. I am the king, but I am weak 
all of this is too strong for me. But the story doesn't end there. It's not over yet, and the Lord will indeed repay the evil for what they've done. He will bring justice as he puts this world to rights. He will do that, and he is doing that. That's the call. That's the invitation. That's the constant call. That's every week is, will you join that? Will you join this cruciform, cross-shaped love life? Will you be part of this movement? Will you be a citizen of the kingdom of the weak king? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for showing yourself to us because we couldn't have drawn that portrait. Uh, Our portrait of a king would look a lot like Abner, kind of a politician that, that knows how to get things done. Or maybe it would look like Joab, someone who's He's going to force a peg into, into a hole. But you give us David and you give us Jesus. And you call us alongside your Apostle Paul to live that sort of life and to spread that word. That good word, that good news. Lord, shape our lives like a cross. Reform our hearts into that shape even if that means having to do some pretty intensive surgery. Lord, by your Spirit, breathe new life. Make us new. Give us imaginations and hopes. Form through the crucible of weakness and sorrow. Help us be brave enough to go there. And help us be hopeful enough to know that You're bringing the story to completion. Thank you, and we praise you in the name, the strong name of the weak king, Jesus. Amen.